So I will say I, I stayed at an Airbnb a couple months ago, and so obviously there was cable and TV and a thousand different things there. And I kind of had forgotten what it was like. It's like, turn on the TV and scroll through all the channels, and I was like, oh my God, there's so many things I could watch right now. <laughs> that was Shayna, a 20-something girl millennial who had literally forgotten what it was like to sit on the couch, turn on the TV, and have hundreds of channels to choose from. I was talking to Shayna because I too had recently made the decision to switch out of cable and look for new ways to consume media and watch my favorite shows. As I started doing research, I quickly found out that there's a lot of people making the same decision. I'm Luis, and this is Market Ready Startup. Hi, I'm Stacy, and I'm a cord cutter. My name's Serge Patel, and I am a cord cutter. I'm Katie Fahrenbacher, and I'm a cord cutter. Oh, uh, hi, I'm Ryan, and I'm a cord cutter. The more I began to research Life Without Cable, the more I realized this doesn't really feel like a short-term consumer trend. This feels like a fundamental shift in the way that people are consuming media. So it started to raise a lot of interesting questions. What's driving this massive change in consumer behavior? Is it strictly a money thing or is there more to it than that? And with such a big change in attitude and action, what are the new opportunities that are created by the pain points that still haven't been solved for consumers and the industry at large? Want to hear a jaw-dropping stat to start the show? In 2017, there will be 56 million Americans that will not be paying for cable, according to eMarketer. The numbers get even scarier once you start slicing and dicing amongst different demographics, with millennials being overwhelmingly the biggest population to drop cable. And so that's why we focus on millennials for the purposes of this show. The free time that I have to watch TV has just been you know, really limited. So I was really kind of only watching it like once or twice a month. And when I was watching it, I was watching, again, this like stupid mindless entertainment. And so it came to the point that I was like, this isn't really productive. And you know, from a cost perspective, because I'm also now a student, I'm way more cost sensitive than I, than I have been. And I just decided that you know, it, it's not worth it anymore. That was Jackie, one of the millennials that I spoke to while doing research for the show. And that last quote kind of perfectly captures both the obvious and the surprising results that I got while speaking to millennials about their cable watching habits. Went to college and then became a young professional. You go and get like the fully loaded HBO, Showtime, premium packages. Uh, but in the end, I just realized that I wasn't consuming all that content that I was having. And so I guess in, in true uh, millennial fashion, I decided to scale back and actually try and figure out what um, entertainment was I actually consuming and what was I just paying for and not consuming. And so I was a direct TV customer for the longest time um, and definitely um, I was happy with satellite and all that other stuff. But when it came down to it from the programming standpoint, I realized I was only watching maybe three to four live programming channels per week, per month. And so that's when I really started to try and figure out what options could I figure putting together uh, to really make my experience better. Do you notice how similar Harold's response was to Jackie's response? They both basically talked about exactly the same thing, which is price. In no way could either of them justify paying 100 or 200 bucks a month for watching a handful of shows. It just didn't make any sense economically. 
So that's a really, really consistent answer that we heard all across the board. And I'm not going to spend the rest of the show playing you clips of people talking about cost because that one's fairly straightforward. And another one that's fairly straightforward and I heard constantly was the Netflix effect, which is the expectation that we can watch whatever show we want to watch whenever we feel like watching it. But of course, the fun of this research isn't hearing things that are pretty obvious and you already kind of know. It's finding out about things that genuinely catch you off guard or surprise you. So in this research, there was plenty of examples of things that really caught me by surprise. First and foremost, as we were just talking about the Netflix effect and how everything is really on demand, there is a byproduct of that expectation that is really seeming to affect a lot of the millennials, which is while they love having their favorite TV shows on demand that they can watch whenever they want to, they miss the ability of being able to watch things live, especially when it comes to sports or breaking news or uh, events that are capturing the world's imagination and they have no way to watch that in real time. So imagine things like an unexpected no-hitter, a penalty shootout, triple overtime, really, really random and exciting sporting events that no one could have predicted these are the kind of things that people are missing when they cut cable. I mean, there is a certain expectation that you're going to miss out on a good amount of sports, but I think people still like to be caught up in the excitement of watching uh, an unexpected moment happen live. And in addition to that, a lot of the millennials that we spoke to, uh, they're very tech savvy and they're really engaged with social media. So they're reading about it. They're reading comments. They're watching clips, but they really want the ability to be able to share in that real moment in the real time. And right now they don't really have a good option for that. I want to not only get rid of my cable, but I also actually wanted to just get rid of my TV and, and sort of get used to the, I guess, the notion of a TV-less lifestyle. And part of which is part of which is the objective is also just reading more. So when I do have that rare free time, rather than spending it sort of mindlessly looking at the TV, just sort of removing that option. So therefore, I'm more inclined to, to pick up a book instead of just sort of, you know, turn on, you know, the TV and kind of mindlessly watch it. Yeah, I was, I was watching TV on the weekday, but I felt like I was rotting my brain. So I would just come home from work and like, put TV on for a couple hours and go to bed. And so I stopped watching TV during the week and I listened to podcasts. Ooh, the plot thickens. Turns out the debate is much more complicated than simply cable versus streaming. What these guys are talking about is a much broader concept, which is productive use of free time versus unproductive use of free time. But the key takeaway here is perception. Notice that the girls replace shows with something else, meaning they both thought that TV was a waste of time and unproductive use of their free time during the weekdays, and they replaced them with activities like reading a book or listening to a podcast, which they perceive as being productive uses of their free time. Another really important finding of the conversations was the concept of multitasking. So the reason why a lot of the millennials liked reading or listening to podcasts so much is because they were able to do other stuff while they were consuming that media. So for example, a lot of them said they like to listen to podcasts while they're cooking or like to read books while they're at the gym because it allows them to do two things at once, whereas just sitting on the couch and watching TV or trying to figure out what to watch is a static activity. I'm normally multitasking. I love podcasts. I love audiobooks. And then I'm on Twitter and email simultaneously. So to commit my device to watching a show or to watching a documentary or a movie just would eliminate the multitask nature that I'm wired to do. It's clear from the interviews that millennials want cheaper options for cable, 
they want to have all their shows on demand, but they still want the ability to watch certain things live. The perception of watching TV is changing rapidly, and while they still love to binge watch their favorite shows, they reserve those for holidays or weekends. They'd rather fill up their weekdays with productive media consumption like podcasts, reading, so they can multitask and feel more accomplished. Now I'm going to interview folks in the media industry and see if they're aware of these problems and to see what problems are unique to them that they need solving. So I think it's it's less of a of an economic decision because I think at the end of the day, if you look at the amount of dollars spent on media and entertainment as a percentage of income, um, that's staying relatively constant. What you're seeing though is an unbundling and a rebundling around what consumers are perceiving to 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 derive more value from, um, and that they're paying for what they want to watch as opposed to paying for um, 250 to 500 channels that they know they only watch a fraction of. <laughs> you know, if you if you swap out, um, you know, if you're swapping out uh, uh, Verizon FiOS for you know Apple TV and, and Roku and Sling, are you really cutting a cord? The first voice you heard was Anton, a venture capitalist whose firm invests in original content, so shows and movies, and in new media startups. The second voice was David, a corporate attorney who works on venture financing and M&A deals for media tech companies. What they both talked about is a pretty eye-opening trend that is happening, and maybe consumers aren't even aware of it. We may say our biggest cord-cutting driver is costs, but the numbers tell a different story. We're spending more or less the same amount of money as we were with traditional cable. The major difference is that we feel like we're taking control of our watching habits. And to be clear, we're talking at a macro level meaning there are plenty of examples of folks who cut costs significantly. Harold, who I spoke with, cut his costs by almost a third, and Jackie pretty much cut hers entirely. What the experts are saying is that Harold and Jackie are outliers. The majority of people are actually spending about the same with cord cutting as they were with cable. So if cable companies know that people are still spending lots of money on media consumption, why don't they simply change their offerings to be in line with what people want? What you've seen is, is kind of a reliance on... Um, a very profitable um, business that has slowly been um, declining over the past several years. Um, you know, uh, which has obviously prevented them um, from really thinking about how they need to position themselves for the future. Um, and has delayed the process of essentially cannibalizing that business, um, given how much it contributed to their operating cash flow and their operating profits. Because the large cable companies have made so much money with the traditional cable business model, they refuse to move as fast as a consumer shift is happening. This is exactly when opportunities are created for new companies. So what problems does the industry need solving? The first major industry pain point that I heard a lot about was data. Turns out that a lot of media companies are suffering from two big problems. One is not enough user data, and two is not knowing how to turn the data they do have into actions that please their customers. Here's a clip from a media tech panel, and note that when the speaker is saying them, he's referring to millennials. When the capability to understand them exists, then if you don't, you're actually at a disadvantage. And you can understand them through technology and you can understand them by just knowing who they are and just actually, you know, I mean, th th there's actually a, a, a way to, you know, 
build experiences that are great for users deductively or inductively through sort of personalization and algorithms and data and all these things. But there's another way to build audiences, which is proactively by having a really well-defined brand and being able to sort of you know, reinforce that with every single piece of content that you put through. So what he's talking about is the two approaches media companies should take to gain an audience. You can get ton of user data and build products that directly address what the data is telling you about your audience. Or you can build a really strong brand and stay true to it and let the audience come to you. That guy, by the way, works for Vice, so he knows a lot about branding. I think what you're seeing with, you know, the going on in the industry is people sort of rethinking about how to, you know, how they're going to sort of get to consumers in a stable fashion. The second major industry pain I heard a lot about was figuring out the best way to get to consumers. As we learn from our user interviews, people are watching shows through different platforms on different devices at all hours of the day. As a media company, how do you figure out what is the best method to deliver content in a way that your users want? I think ultimately what you're seeing is, is um, you know, a, a, as I mentioned, a debundling um, of the content and of content verticals. Um, I think one of the pain points now is that people have to manage a multitude of subscriptions um, from a multitude of services. Uh, which ultimately is not, you know, customer friendly, right? And I think what you'll likely see down the road is consolidation, um, where you're essentially going to see a rebundling from a con for convenience sake for the consumer um, of a number of these different services. Never in my entire life had I heard the terms bundle and debundle used more often than talking to industry folks about what's going on in media consumption. What they're saying is that we now use too many apps and have too many subscriptions to deal with for media. It increases costs and damages the user experience. How many times have you forgotten your Hulu password or had to remember, is Handmaid's Tale on Netflix, Hulu, or HBO? It's basically inevitable that these services will be bundled or grouped together by someone. At this point, though, we really don't know who is going to do it, but someone will. There's another important shift happening in the media industry that's very relevant to my research. And that is the monetization of audiences is radically changing in today's option-filled media landscape. Here's another clip from the media panel. Do we have to rethink what it means to be successful? I mean, we live in a world where I, I traditionally think of you get to 100 million subscribers or 80 million plus subscribers and you're a successful cable network. Glenn Beck has, I think, 400,000 subscribers. WWE has a million subscribers. Are we redefining what successes in the video business? Sure, because those those two examples you use, I mean, Glenn is incredibly profitable at three, four hundred thousand subscribers. Imagine an ad-supported vehicle, you know, property uh, in the digital world could not make a dime off of four hundred thousand users. And a television show on cable that had four hundred thousand viewers would soon find itself a digital show. It would find itself canceled. So, it, you know, the, to, to have these different economics and the ability to generate tens of millions of dollars in profit off of that base d redefines everything. This ability to monetize a relatively small core audience is a big advantage for new companies. Think about it. No longer do you have to start a media company with the goal of gaining millions and millions of viewers to be relevant. There are tremendous opportunities to grow highly profitable businesses from a small but highly engaged audience base. In fact, if you can build a strong niche following, 
you can become a very interesting acquisition target for the legacy media companies. Here's Anton, the VC, talking about M&A opportunities for content companies. Legacy brands are looking for companies that do a number of different things, either have large, young, and engaged audiences um, that they traditionally have not been or haven't been able to engage with or had a hard time engaging with um, because of a disconnect from a um, a branding perspective, a technology perspective, a DNA perspective. Um, so I think one is, is acquiring, you know, brands that, that have that loyal following, um, and that are going to be able to add to, um, add to an existing company's kind of like IP stream. So let's put it all together. From our millennials, we learned that they want to have control over their media consumption. They want to watch what they want, when they want. They're tired of predetermined bundles created by cable companies that they believe are overly priced and filled with mindless junk that they love, but only want to consume at specific moments, like weekends or vacations. They want more media that's in line with their multitasking nature. And they're tired of all the separate apps and subscriptions that they have to manage in order to watch a handful of shows. They love having their content on demand, but they miss being able to join in on live sports and breaking news. From our media experts, we learned that they're still having lots of problems understanding their audience. They want more data to better serve their audience's rapidly changing media habits from content all the way down to figuring out which device best delivers what media. We also learned the industry knows they should be charging less for cable, but they're very reluctant to give up this historically wildly profitable business model. Opportunities do exist in data collection, but be aware that data collection is the game for Google and Facebook. So you must be a true data genius and offer a truly novel way to gather data around an audience. The best opportunities in data collection seem to be around understanding what devices people use at various points of their day. The best opportunities exist in delivering content. There is specific content that is better suited for podcasts, eBooks, shows, movies, live performances, etc. Understand your audience's preference for media consumption by device and deliver content specifically created for that experience. You can repackage content that is better suited for different devices. I have an unresearched hypothesis that any TV show where people are sitting around and talking will be better suited as a podcast. Once you really understand your audience, you can create multiple content formats for one vehicle. Think about creating after-show podcasts, newsletters, meetups, etc. to really create and cement a rabid fan base for your content. Thanks for checking out this episode of Market Ready Startup. We hope you wrote down multiple startup ideas and start doing your own research and refine those ideas until they're market ready. We're starting a Slack group so fans of the show can collaborate on ideas. Wouldn't it be awesome if a unicorn came out of one of these podcasts? Send us an email to ideas at marketreadystartup.com for Slack invites or to give us your thoughts on the problems we talked about. See you next time.